mostly sunny with the high of 66. Thursday night, chance of showers with a low of 48. WGFF is currently seeking new board members. Perhaps you have experience in human resources, nonprofit administration, finance, marketing, media, or you just love your community radio station and you want to do a bit more. Call us to see if becoming a board member is a good fit for you. 845-482-4141 or email manager at wgffradio.org. Attitude with Arnie Arneson and producer Ken Barnes. It is hump day, Wednesday, April 24th. So tomorrow's the big day. The Biden big enters day. the race. <laughs> and uh, I was telling Ken that NBC News came to my house and they said, so what do you think? How is Biden going to do? I said, his best day is today. <laughs> and they went, oh, Arnie, you're such a jerk. And then, and then better than that, I, they were asking, the first thing I actually said was, the kid's entering the race. The kid's entering the race. And they go, Arnie. I said, well, he's 76 and Bernie's 77. I mean, you've got to understand we're talking about, you know, this is an aged brat demographic that we have to sort of refer in a different way. Anyway, on this uh, April 24th, uh, no, we're not going to be talking about Biden today. We're actually going to be talking about a lot of other things. But, we, uh, could. we could. We could. We could. I like him. I like him. I just I think I like him better as a statesman than as a candidate for president. But that's another story. Well, everybody likes him because he's a nice guy. But, exactly. you know, my next door neighbor is nice. Uh, am I well, he's, he's yesterday's story. You know? He's yesterday's story. It's just it's he's not he might have been an okay president at some time, but not this time. Anyway, but I just think we should. We and should in let fact, you know. he's run several times. And, yeah, two uh, times. This has, would be third time as a charm. I think is what he's suggesting. Has never seemed to generate yeah. much enthusiasm. Anyway, yeah. I just have to go back to the border, the migrants, because the other day the FBI arrested the leader of a right wing militia mm. that is illegally detaining migrants in New Mexico and. Yeah. It just strikes me as unbelievable that these guys and their white guys can get away with this. They are kidnapping people. They're, they call they're it a citizens. They call it a citizen's arrest. I want you to know how they frame it. Not that it means that that's what they're doing, but that's how they that's how they cloak but themselves. But they have no authority to make citizens arrests of these people. And in fact, they have been asked by the border patrol to not do it. Do it to not do anything with these people and let border patrol do its job. It is so reminiscent of Trayvon Martin. The young black teen who was murdered by a similar vigilante, George right. Zimmerman, right. in Florida. Because he was walking in a neighborhood and wearing a hoodie and had chiclets in his pocket or whatever. Yeah, and from oh the perspective God. of George Zimmerman, I'm a white guy and I live here and this guy doesn't look but like But they he have legally here. given him the authority to do that. That's what's so frightening about the kind of quasi stand your ground law that they passed in Florida, which got him off for murdering Trayvon Martin. Right. But that doesn't make it any more correct or make it any less un-American. It's just astounding. I mean, Arnie, if you're walking along on the border and with your little kids and some guys with guns come up to you and point the guns right at you and your kids because and say, swarthy sit and on the ground, hair. sit on the ground here, don't move and stay here as long as I want you to while I go get the Border Patrol people. And where are your papers? Now, let me just ask someone. I, I go walking with nothing on, no papers, no license, no passport. So, And if I was dark and had dark skin and I was walking along the border, but mm-hmm. I was born in Bay Ridge, Brooklyn, like I was, guess what? What, what's the difference? They would do exactly the same thing, everyone. That's exactly. how frightening this is. Exactly. Or if you're Sandra Bland and you're yeah. just driving while black. But this is just, I don't know, it boggles my mind. You're walking along, somebody comes along with a gun and says, you stay here. And 
you're not going to ask. If you or I, Arnie, were walking along and were stopped, we wouldn't say, where's your authority? Where's your yeah. papers? You're pointing we're, a gun in my face. You're the, a bunch of big girly guys with guns in my face. You're frightened. And how can they be allowed to do that? So can you check the the stories about these guys? And I, I, I please, I don't want to put out misinformation, but I was under the impression at one point in time that they were actually sort of wearing um, masks or they they didn't show themselves. I, I thought I saw something that suggested that. And it just it just oozed the KKK. It just it yeah, just it, it like felt it felt like that. And and I, I want to make sure that that this is the same group. But I, I think it is. And that's another piece of the idea that they want this anonymity. You know, they they mm. want to be brutes. They want to intimidate. And yet at the same time, they don't want to leave their fingerprints. You know, it's yeah, just I don't evil. think these are the same, same guys are, who were wearing were, masks, yeah. but they were doing the same things that, that the Klan does. Yeah. The inter- attorney general of New Mexico, Hector Balderas, arrested this guy for being a felon in possession of firearms. Right. Uh, he didn't charge him with the kidnapping. But he says this is a dangerous felon who should not have weapons right. and surely shouldn't have them around children and families. Right. And today's arrest by the FBI clearly indicates that the rule of law should be in the hands of trained law enforcement exactly. officers, not armed vigilantes. Exactly. exactly. And that's exactly right. The governor of New Mexico criticized these people and told them to stop trying to bully people into mm-hmm. submission. Exactly. The, well, it, that's the first step towards towards anarchy. I mean, where everyone thinks takes the law into their own hands and there is no law because it's how they interpret it. Right. And if anyone wants to look, this group is called United Constitutional Patriots, and uh, they recently uploaded videos of armed members detaining children and their parents uh, in the New Mexico desert near El Paso. Yeah, we're going we're gonna to be talking with Mark Stern from Slate Magazine in the second half of the show. And in a bizarre way, mm-hmm. the story you're telling now, even though we're talking about the census, it actually relates to this. Think about that. Because what is the census asking the citizenship question? What's the reason for asking the citizenship question? To make sure that there's a significant undercount. What is the undercount going to be of of Hispanics, both Hispanics that are are, are citizens as well as Hispanics who are undocumented immigrants. I mean, understand all this stuff is about intimidation. That's what this is. This is a continuing threat of intimidation. Oh, my God. Well, it turns out that while they're doing the citizens arrests, they are not wearing masks. But when a Republican New Mexican named Gavin Clarkson, a former Trump administration official who's now yeah. running for Senate in New Mexico, did a video and he met with masked members. Okay, of the group okay, in thank March. you, thank and, you. I did see masks. And this Republican running for Senate praised this group's okay. efforts. He put a video of the encounter up up on. So Facebook. I'm not imagining it. I'm not. No. They, all right. Okay, no, good. But the videos I saw of them Most arresting so-called okay. the migrants, they were not wearing masks. All right. Well, thank you very much. It's going to be an interesting day today, and uh, we're going to begin our show by talking about how the media covers opioid addiction. And this is an ama- it was at the Columbia Journalism Review. And it's amazing. And, and you know why this is such an important story? Because they just arrested one of the big pharma guys because of uh, right, their right. contribution to uh, addiction. And I believe that Donald Trump, believe it or not, is on his way down to some big sort of conference about uh, addiction and how the how the, the feds are doing such a great job of helping the states deal with this issue. Right. Yeah. Right. The feds are always doing yeah, a great I know. job. Um, so normally I do good news, but I'm going to do something a little bit quirky because I mentioned that I uh, was talking to NBC this morning and um this is not me, everyone. This is David Rothkopf. And he decided to look at the Dem lanes and looking at the different candidates that are running for president. And he uses this descriptor, not mine, not mine. Let me remind you. So his description of the Dem lanes for now are Senator Sanders. And I really disagree with this one. He called him anarchist hard left. And I said, no, disruptor hard left. Disruptor. That's really what he is. Elizabeth Warren. Idea-driven progressive, Kamala Harris, pragmatic progressive, Joe Biden, nostalgic, uh, Mayor Pete, aspirational change agent, Amy Klobuchar, pragmatic, pragmatic, this is my favorite, Beto O'Rourke, last year's progressive. <laughs> I just thought it was hysterical. Cory Booker, evangelical progressive, Hickenlooper. Ernest technocrat, Senator Gillibrand in search of a message. And uh, one of his last ones is Tim Ryan, who dat? 
Anyway, these are absolutely hilarious, everyone. So I just want to let you know, I mean, I, I hate to say this with so many candidates running. Uh, I'm not only can I be exhausted by it, but there is almost a level of hilarity to it because we know there isn't a flavor that isn't being covered. I mean, I just feel like it's like Heinz 57. Absolutely amazing. All right, everyone. Um, this is an amazing day to do this show. And the reason is, is that there is so much conversation happening nationally about uh, the opioid addiction problem in America, whether it's Donald Trump going down for this big conference or uh, uh, one of the big pharma CEOs being arrested because of their contribution to the addiction. And I kept thinking, wow, I wish a couple of those bankers were arrested, too, after 2008. But oh, well, I, I won't lament that because we've sort of moved on. But I saw a piece at the Columbia Journalism Review that I just thought was so important. And I actually posted it on Facebook and I said, Attention, New Hampshire media. And in part, the reason I said attention, New Hampshire media is that the title of the piece is Life Saving Opioid Addiction Treatments Get a Negative Slant. And let me just read the first sentence and then I'm going to toss to uh, the writer of this piece, Zachary Siegel. Researchers analyzing media coverage of medications that treat opioid addiction. Now, listen to these words find inaccurate and negatively slanted coverage, especially in states with high mortality rates for overdose. (gasps) What a chilling sentence. Joining us right now on the line is Zachary Siegel. He's a freelance journalist in Chicago whose work has appeared in The Times magazine, uh, Slate, The Atlantic, Under Dark Magazine. And I want to welcome him to the program. His area of specialty is science, health and drug policy. Thank you so much for joining us, Zachary. And the timing could not be better. Hey, thanks for having me on the show. So, Zachary, um, you also write for something called The Fix. Is that correct? So I haven't written for them for a while, but they are a addiction-focused and recovery-focused uh, online magazine. Now, tell me a little bit about Zachary, because as my understanding is, is that I'm kind of curious about sort of your area of expertise and your level of journalism, because um, I think that you also understand addiction as well. Yeah. So, I mean, it, it's a long story, and I'm, I'm 29 years old now, but when I was about 17, uh, friends of mine in high school and me, we were all addicted to OxyContin. And yeah. so were these teenagers in sort of an affluent suburb of Chicago, yeah. and pills were kind of everywhere. Yeah. And over time, using them daily, I became addicted. And it, it's such a slow, insidious process. But by the time I was 22, I was using heroin intravenously. Wow. and. It's because I have, you know, parents who are successful and love me and a family who supports me that I was able to get the treatment I needed and ultimately recover. And all these years later, here I am, a a professional writer and journalist. And you're writing about things like this, which is so important. And in a lot of ways, I I want you to know that my former producer was also addicted to drugs as well as Mm -hmm. alcohol. And uh, and she fought it and managed to come out of it. So I want people to understand that we need to talk about this issue because there is life after addiction. You are a perfect example of life after addiction, as well as my uh, former producer, Susan Bruce, is a perfect example of life after addiction. But what is so chilling is that... There are ways of treating people who are addicted, but if the media isn't covering it accurately, they not only influence the public, they influence the police, and they influence the policymakers. So tell us a little bit about the study that was published in Health Affairs, because I think this is a really important time to have this conversation, and I want to make sure that everyone in the media in my state reads this piece and reads the study. Yes, thank you so much for highlighting its importance. So Without getting too wonky to break down the study, uh, researchers at Johns Hopkins and the University of Minnesota, they analyzed media articles from 2007 to 2016 Mm -hmm. that mentioned medications like methadone, buprenorphine, and naltrexone. So all of these medications are FDA approved to treat opioid use disorder, which is also just opioid addiction. And so basically what they found was there are inaccurate and 
sort of overhyped negative consequences that sort of characterize a lot of the coverage. And, you know, side effects of drugs are important, and every drug has side effects, like opioids cause constipation, for example, and that's like a side effect that ought to be reported. Mm -hmm. But the side effects for these drugs are more like negative consequences and breaking the law. Everyone is worried about the diversion of these drugs and to the point where basically all the positive effects and benefits of the drugs get bogged down in this sort of overhyped concern about drug diversion. And by diversion, I mean sort of people selling them on the black market. And so basically what happens is when you interview prosecutors and judges and police officers who don't have a medical background, they're going to overhype these negative consequences. And what that does is ultimately drown out all the life-saving properties of these medications. I think in fewer than 40% of the news articles, the researchers found that basically fewer than 40% um, sorry, had even described that these drugs are life-saving and that they have positive benefits. So let me just read something to everyone. And you have in your piece that medications do a better job at keeping people engaged in treatment than traditional abstinence-based approaches. Most relevant to this overdose emergency, methadone, what's the other one? Buprenorphine. Buprenorphine, also known as Suboxone. Suboxone, okay, that's what I'm familiar with. Suboxone in particular. Listen to this, everyone. These drugs reduce one's risk of fatal overdose by more than 50%. Both drugs are considered the gold standard of care, and the World Health Organization lists them as essential medications. So I want people to understand that when you look at this and you look at what the positive effects are of these drugs, it is not only important to make them available, but it's important for the media to accurately represent why they are more useful than some of the negative slants that they're putting out about these drugs, which will make doctors and politicians and the public reluctant to make Maybe access them. Oh God! So, 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 talk to me a little bit about 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 this coverage and what are the consequences and about what it has done to actually almost encourage a vast underutilization. Yeah. So, there's a 2016 New York Times opinion piece with the headline "Addicted to a Treatment for Addiction," and then there's another. A New York Times piece from 2013 that describes Suboxone as another form of dope. And basically, when we get these sort of negative portrayals, these sort of scary instances of, of people becoming, quote, addicted to their medications, it, it has this effect where people think it, people equate it with using Oxycontin or Vicodin or something like that. It, so if you're if you're blaming big pharma and you're blaming prescription opioids for the cause of the overdose crisis, right. then here we are with treatments that also happen to be opioids but are much safer opioids. People get them confused and think, oh, well, here exactly. big pharma is again exactly. just trying to get us all hooked on another opioid when really it's a life-saving treatment. It's like a, it's like someone with diabetes who needs insulin. Basically, if you're right. addicted to opioids right. and you use these what a opioids. Good example. Mm. Yeah. 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 Well, you, you have a, a wonderful quote from Harvard's Mass General Hospital Substance Use Disorder Initiative, uh, Dr. Sarah Wakeman. And, and I want people to hear this, everyone. Quote, she says, as an addiction medicine physician, I would say that stigma and persistent misunderstanding about the role of medication for opioid use disorder is one of the biggest, if not the single greatest, barriers to ensuring people have access to those treatments. But what the purpose of your story is, is that you found that there was such so much greater negative co- coverage in 
in states like mine where the mm-hmm. local news outlets were actually they were the ones that were sort of casting this negative aura about these drugs in a state that has an acute problem where we have one of the highest, you know, overdose rates in the country. So just in a state that needs this access, that wants it, makes it more available, you find out what would be driving that negative coverage. Ignorance, not wanting to spend the money, being misled. Why would that be the case, Zach? So exactly why that's the case is beyond the scope of the study. But there's plenty of theories and hypotheses that that make a lot of sense to me. And so I interviewed Beth Macy, who authored the book Dope Sick, which takes place in Virginia. Mm -hmm. And what she was saying is that so so many local newspapers have budget constraints. They're being hollowed out by... They're hedge fund owners. There's, there's not enough money in local journalism these days, so the staffs do not have dedicated science and health reporters covering the opioid beat. Right. And so when you when you approach this topic with that is so rife with misinformation and has been sort of dominated by charlatans on daytime TV like like Dr. Drew and Dr. Phil and Dr. Oz, you get all this misinformation. You have to sift through all this noise. And unless you have a strong background in science and medicine and health, it is very easy to get misled, especially by the law enforcement community, who they come into contact with these drugs and see them as just another drug that people are misusing and addicted to. But when you talk to doctors and you read the scientific literature, you get a much different story. Well, you know, so as I'm listening to you, it almost becomes an imperative that especially in states like mine and Ohio and West Virginia that are sort of at the, the they're at the fulcrum of this issue because we're really suffering from it. It almost behooves uh, people within the medical community to make sure that they are brought into legislatures to testify and that and that the media can at least present that information. They should be required to talk to law enforcement and judges and train them. I mean, that's one of the biggest things. We didn't understand domestic violence until people who had an expertise in domestic violence started training cops and training judges about what to do, because otherwise it's so easy to blame the victim. You know, because you, you don't quite comprehend what's happening. Well, now we are seeing death. We're seeing what's happening to families. It is costing us billions of dollars. And to not use effective treatment is, uh, is more complicated than you could possibly know. But for the media to aid and abet misinformation is to actually kill people. And that's something they, I know they don't want to do, but we almost need to focus this. And that's why this story is so important, is that people need to understand what the facts are because they're being misled by, uh, unfortunately, as you pointed out, the charlatans on television or what they're seeing on Instagram. Right. I think, I think you're exactly right, that the people who have been studying this topic for decades have a lot to offer in the conversation and can play a huge role in really disrupting all these cultural stereotypes of drug users being manipulative and selfish and all these really negative stereotypes that really get dominated by media and entertainment, that those tropes really slip into the news coverage. And and that's a big problem. We really need to be dealing in facts in science on this topic. So, so Zachary, uh, a number of years ago, I interviewed a father whose son uh, died of addiction and very, very wealthy guy. And he's formed some organization. And my mind's going to forget this because it happened like five years ago. But one of the things he said was he reinforced what you said. This is five years ago before my state was really even coming to grips with the fact that we were in such an acute situation. And he mm-hmm. was talking about the number of drugs that were available to deal with treatment. And he said, not there's no silver bullet. That sometimes one drug works well and sometimes it doesn't. Then you have to go to the second drug. And sometimes you may need a combination of them. But he said, but you need to understand there isn't one, but there are three or four available and you need to make use of them. And you need to figure out what works for this addiction. And don't run away from medication in order to treat this addiction. We did that and it was our mistake as a family. Don't. And that's when he became an expert on the subject in order to make sure that another 
kid didn't die because they were misled about what to do instead of being informed about what to do. And, and I think, you know, and I remember that interview like it was yesterday, but then to read this report and this study that was done, and we're talking 2019, and we're seeing even greater consequences of what's happened, and we're seeing this addiction really having huge impacts, not just on families and on states' budgets, but I was saying the other day that the children who are born of addicted families are now coming into our elementary schools, and you're beginning to see the consequences of that as well. So I think this article is incredibly important, and I hope the media uh, becomes more aware, and even if they have you know, some little bit of resources, at least what they share is accurate. Can I just ask, Zach, yeah, did yeah, you uh, speak to people in the media about why their coverage that you That's saw right. that is negative or doesn't sufficiently emphasize the positive? What have you found from them? So, yeah, I, I did interview a science journalist named Maya Solovitz, and she has been covering the overdose crisis for many, many years. And long before we called this an epidemic, she was using the science to direct her reporting on this subject. Is she still and, working? <laughs> yeah, and she's still working. Okay, and, okay. <laughs> and, basi- and basically, it's what, what it comes down to, I think, is that addiction is still criminalized yes. and that drug use is stigmatized. Zach, and- I need to let you go, but you're, that's okay. the point. It's still criminalized. Thank you yes. so much for joining us and thank you for writing this article. And I'm glad you made it through. All right. Thank you so Ciao. Much. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. All right, everyone. This is The Attitude with Artie Artisan and Ken Barnes. We're going to do a little labor history, which comes up next. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1937. That was the day a truce came in the Stockton cannery workers' strike. It was a pivotal moment that embodied the conflicts of the 1930s labor movement. The AFL initially wrote agricultural workers off as unorganizable. They soon raced to unionize California canneries ahead of the International Longshoremen's Association's March Inland to organize warehouse workers. By early April, Agricultural Workers Union 20221, representing five canneries, demanded higher pay, better working conditions, and a closed shop. The canners and growers refused on the basis that they had just granted a 25% raise to the workers. They then attempted to spike union support among workers, whether AFL or CIO, by arguing, quote, one was dominated by communists, the other by racketeers. So take your choice. Soon, they formed a Citizens Labor Investigating Committee to thwart the impending strike. Picket lines went up in the early hours of April 15th. Growers and canners appealed to law enforcement to do something and appealed to the public to enlist in the forcible reopening of the canneries. Dubbed the Pick Handle Army, anti-union forces joined the sheriff's department in confronting the strikers on the 23rd. There, they battled with picketers for over three hours in what is referred to as the spinach riot. Picketers confronted scabs and spinach delivery drivers and were beaten, gassed, and shot by sheriff's forces, resulting in one death and 58 injuries of strikers. Considered one of the worst labor battles in California's history, the state federation moved to strip the union of its charter once the truce was called. They reorganized workers as Cannery Workers Union 20676 and won sole recognition. But agricultural workers would remain unorganized for years to come. I'm Dr. Anthony Lazowitz, and this is Climate Connections. During Superstorm Sandy, rain drenched Soulfire Farm in upstate New York. But the farm's crop losses were minimal. It was because we were using an Afro-Indigenous technology of permanent raised beds. So the water was channelized, it was diverted, it was slowed down. Farmer Leah Penniman says many climate-friendly farming methods were originally developed by people of color. For example, many of us are familiar with vermicomposting or composting with worms, and that has roots in ancient Egypt under the reign of Cleopatra. Cover crops, you know, we can thank George Washington Carver for that. As extreme weather becomes more common and these techniques gain attention, Penman wants to make sure their origins are remembered and honored. And she wants to help people of color reclaim this farming legacy. At Soulfire Farm, she offers workshops on growing food sustainably. And in her book, Farming While Black, She gives practical advice for people of color interested in starting a farm. 
She says supporting aspiring farmers of color is one step towards creating a more just food system and one that's better prepared for climate change. We're very, very proud and excited to be helping raise up the next generation of climate-conscious farmers. Climate Connections is produced by the Yale Center for Environmental Communication. Learn more at YaleClimateConnections.org. Attitude with Arnie Arnison, and producer Ken Barnes. And on the Attitude, we play a song, the redistricting song. Who knew there was a redistricting song? Yeah. But we're not talking about what well, we are sort of talking about redistricting when you're I talking know, about the census. I know, but it's you're a gonna, stretch. You're going to talk to Mark about the Supreme Court For, argument on and the, the census, census question. And, and, and it ends up being about the number. It is. It is. It yeah. affects the number of people that will represent different states and how we adjust it. So and, and it's the, a stretch. Dis- and the disproportionate inaccuracies that will result if that question is asked. Uh, and you're right. And on that note, joining us uh, is the great writer from Slate magazine. Uh, we adore him. He's written a number of pieces, but the one that we're going to focus on to begin our conversation is one, by the way, Mark Joseph Stern, I posted on Facebook and I said, read this, read this, read this. And then your last paragraph was, maybe this is a reason to pack the court. Anyway, uh, the title of the piece is, The Supreme Court is Poised to Shred Its Credibility to Let Trump rig the census. So we've been hearing a lot of this conversation because it's obviously in the news because of what happened the other day. Uh, but I want you to sort of take us through your incredible concerns about this and how the court has to turn themselves inside out, go from black to white, from up to down in order to actually embrace what the Trump administration wants to do. Welcome to the program. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me back on. And, uh, yeah, it was a dispiriting day at the Supreme Court yesterday uh, because, as you say, it looks like a majority of the justices are willing to just abandon their principles and close their eyes to facts in order to hand a win here to the Trump administration. And it is a massive win if it does come through for him, uh, because this is not just uh, about a single election. This case is really about every election through the next decade into the early 2030s, because the 2020 census is going to be the basis for not only redistricting the House of Representatives, and not only assigning electoral votes to states at the Electoral College, but also all 50 states' uh, individual legislatures are going to be redistricted using census data. And so if this data is warped, it is going to have a massive impact on countless elections for at least a decade, which is why I think more people should really be talking about this case. Okay, so now um, that I want to collectively vomit, uh, <laughs> why, don't you, why don't you just take us through a little bit about what this question is and why just adding this one question to the census, there are only about 10 questions, so it's not like they're asking you like 150 questions, but why this question in particular will have such an enormous consequence as you just described and so I think, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a lethal blow to democracy. Absolutely. Uh, so we haven't had a census uh, that concludes a citizenship question since 1950. And one of the main reasons that the government leaves off this question is that the Constitution doesn't require it. Uh, to the contrary, the Constitution requires an actual enumeration of the people in the country, not the citizens, not the voters, but the people, including immigrants, 
uh, including even undocumented immigrants, including green card holders. Everybody is supposed to be counted. What the Census Bureau has found, and this is utterly uncontested by the Trump administration, is that if you do include a citizenship question, that the response rate among immigrants drops precipitously. Uh, they will refuse to respond to the census because they fear that the Trump administration, the government, is going to share the information about their citizenship status, or lack thereof, with other agencies like ICE or CBP. Uh, not only immigrants are afraid of this question, Hispanics broadly are also afraid of this question, including Hispanics who are themselves citizens, because so many Hispanics have family members and friends who are undocumented. And so they are afraid. They have to say not only if they are citizens, but they have to talk about people in their household. They fear answering this question and ratting out inadvertently cousins or uncles or neighbors who are not citizens and drawing the scrutiny of the government to them. And so the problem here is that the census will, if it includes a citizenship question, provoke an undercount of Hispanics and immigrants who tend to live in blue states and urban regions and democratic-leaning areas. That will lead the government to strip away House seats from those areas, that will lead states to strip away legislative seats from those areas, that will lead the federal government to revoke billions of dollars in funding that is allocated on the basis of the census, and all of that electoral power and money is instead going to be transferred to predominantly white, rural, Republican areas where there was no undercount. So I want to just read a sentence from your piece. Commerce Secretary Wilbur Ross, who oversees the Census Bureau, initially claimed that the Department of Justice asked him to add the question so it could better, gag me, enforce the Voting Rights Act. In reality, Ross's excuse was a lie. So let's talk a little bit about all the lies that Wilbur Ross told. I mean, on top of this, I mean, this is just unbelievable. Not only do you have the proof that it will create an undercount, not only have we not done it since 1950, but then you have, you know, basically the he was caught in a lie and he lied about everything. That's the part that's so shocking, Mark, why the Supreme Court said, I'm sorry, you don't belong here because you're a liar. Uh, I mean, that that didn't even add to the fact that there should be such dismay about putting this question on. Right. And that was what was astonishing yesterday is that there seemed to be this divide between the liberal justices uh, and the conservative justices about recognizing the fact of Wilbur Ross's lies. Uh, We know it is simply uncontested that Ross shopped around this citizenship question to different federal agencies, asking them to ask him to include it. So he asked the Justice Department, and at first it said, no, we're not going to ask you to add a citizenship question because we don't need one. He was looking for some kind of excuse to add this, right? So he went to the Department of Homeland Security. He said, hey, DHS, will you send me a letter asking for a citizenship question? And DHS said, no, we don't need one. So he went back to the Justice Department, and he basically basically threatened to call Jeff Sessions and hold a meeting with Jeff Sessions, who was then Attorney General, and punish the individuals who were not sending him a letter to demand a citizenship question. So finally, they caved, and DOJ officials said, sure, okay, we'll send you a letter that asks for a citizenship question, we'll go ahead and do it, and we'll, we'll use the pretext that we needed to enforce the Voting Rights Act, which is a total joke in this administration, but that's a whole other thing. And then Ross lied about this problem to Congress. I mean, he basically perjured himself by claiming that the DOJ sent its letter unprompted, when in fact he finagled this letter through these complex machinations, all designed to conceal the obvious fact that it was always Ross himself who wanted a reason to include the citizenship question because the real reason was so brazenly racist and partisan that he didn't think it could pass legal muster. And didn't Steve Bannon help to plant that seed? Didn't yes, Steve, Bannon yeah, too I was want, involved I, behind the scenes. Oh my God. But I, I want to I I just show you the abuse of Wilbur Ross. You also include in this, just to give a couple of examples of what he did uh, by repeatedly breaking the law, he missed the deadline to report a new 
census question in Congress. He failed to comply with the requirement that the secretary exhaust all other options for its data gathering before adding direct inquiries to the census. I mean, there isn't a stone you can turn where he didn't do something lying and deceitful and dishonest. And then he's coming to the court, you know, and presenting all these lies as if this is going to somehow persuade them. But what's so scary is this is such a damn political court that they are they're they're almost they're embracing things they never embraced before on the conservative side. So talk to me about the fact that they pointed to the U.N. This is unbelievable. And about what other countries do. I mean, this is a court that never looks to other countries and suddenly they're hiding behind other countries. Right. Uh, This blew me away. I mean, we we talked about the voting rights thing. It's absurd for these justices to pretend like they care about enforcing the Voting Rights Act when they've tried to gut it over and over again. Uh, But when both Kavanaugh and Gorsuch brought up the United Nations, talked about how the United Nations uh, recommends that countries canvass for citizens to uh, do some kind of poll to figure out how many citizens they have, uh, listed other countries that do include a citizenship question on their census, and said, hey, why shouldn't this international law be a basis for our decision uh, to uphold a citizenship question, which, I mean, maybe that sounds reasonable in a vacuum, but both of these guys have written or spoken screeds against the use of international law in American jurisprudence. They are fundamentally opposed to uh, surveying international practice and custom and law to figure out what the United States should do. They will never do it in a death penalty case. They will never do it in a juvenile justice case uh, or a reproductive rights case. But when it comes to the census, suddenly they're spouting stuff about the U.N. This is hypocrisy (laughs) on a scale I've rarely seen at the Supreme Court. Yeah, but you have to know something. The the reason why not only did that sort of scream at me out of your article, which is so incredible, you have to read this, everyone, share it, read it. But um, but you also mentioned that it was in an amicus brief by the Eagle Forum, which is a fringe reactionary group founded by Phyllis Schlafly. I mean, even Phyllis Schlafly's people had to bend themselves inside out to put this in their amicus brief. But then when you find it in their amicus brief, it so makes sense that these conservative justices would suddenly embrace international law, even though they've always, you know, crapped on international law before. But yeah, the, but, I mean, as I heard them making that argument, I thought, this sounds familiar. I feel like I read this in some crazy fringe brief, and then I thought, oh, yes, the Phyllis Schlafly brief, that's the one. So um, a couple of things. Tell me what you – read the tea leaves for me. Justice Roberts is obviously going to be the pivotal character in this thing. We know where four are going. We know where the other four are going. The question is, Roberts would tend normally, I think, to go with the conservative justices on this. But this looks so overtly, disgustingly political. It is it, – it really requires the court to, as you point out, to shame themselves by basically embracing what Trump wants to do. Would Roberts allow – this court to be so, so slapped and swamped in mud. I mean, this is disgusting on every level. And yet normally, if it was a a normal situation, I know where he would go. I just keep hoping that there's enough of an institutional uh, list or whatever that word is, that he would not necessarily side with them. Well, I think that Robert's is an institutionalist. That's why he voted the way he did in the Obamacare cases. Right, right. But I think that it is extremely difficult for people like us to get in his head and figure out which cases he conceives as a threat to the institution of the court and which ones he is willing to simply embrace his conservative instincts in uh, and go with the other arch-reactionary Republican justices. Uh, and that's increasingly the question in every case that comes before the court, since Roberts is the new swing justice. Uh, and I think this case, there was some hope. I had some hope that he would look at it and say, this is absurd. You know, Wilbur Ross broke the law at least six different ways by the lower court's count. Uh, We only have to pick one of those to block the citizenship question and say, try again next time if you want, but this doesn't pass legal muster. Instead, Roberts really sounded skeptical of the plaintiff's arguments here. He really sounded like he was trying to run defense for the government. Uh, Just like the other conservative justices, he was embracing the Voting Rights Act pretext 
Uh, he seemed to have this look on his face. I mean, I've, I've become kind of acquainted with Robert's facial expressions. Okay. He looked like he was bored. And when Robert oh. looks bored, it usually means Uh-oh. he's made up his mind. And yeah. I think in this case, he had made up his mind for the government. Hey, Mark, do you, do, thanks. Do, do you think that maybe what how Roberts chooses which cases to protect the institution, as you said, rather than just follow his instinct to support the Republican administration, could have something to do with voters and popularity. Like the ACA is very popular. Healthcare is very important, and it gets high profile in the press. This is an unknown. Uh, so he, suppo- he stuck his neck out there to protect the institution from being seen as overtly political. But this issue, exactly, the census, I mean, which voters are really going to know Go about it mat. or care about it at some point come election day yeah. or even the day after the Supreme Court issues its decision. So he can be bored and not stick his neck out on this one. I think that's a somewhat cynical way of looking at it. I also think it's probably correct in a lot of respects. Um, He is much more concerned about the institution when he thinks lots of people are paying attention to the case, when he thinks that uh, a certain kind of ruling will provoke a massive backlash. And that makes sense from an institutionalist perspective, even if it's also cynical. Uh, The way you framed it uh, makes it sound political, but I think he, and I think it is political, but he is able to turn these uh, sort of political rationalizations uh, into something more noble, as he did in the ACA case, where instead of making it sound like he'd just done these political trade-offs to protect the court's reputation, he sounded like this great defender of neutrality in the Constitution. Uh, And I do think that's part of what's going on here. Another factor could be that he's less likely to stick his neck out uh, in cases that will help the Republican Party win elections. Um, He really likes the Republican Party. Uh, He probably doesn't like Trump, but he still supports the GOP. And he knows that if if the government rigs the census, that's going to shift more power to the Republicans so, for at least 10 years. He likes that. That means more Republican judges for him, more Republican legislatures and laws. Uh, that is all in his wheelhouse. It's in his interest. So me, uh, and so in a case like the ACA, you know, it's kind of hard to gauge the electoral impact. And, and in fact, if he had overturned the ACA, it might have created even more of a, of a backlash for Democrats with the wind at their backs. Uh, here, if no one's really paying a lot of attention, he can hand a big ruling to Republicans. They can win a lot more elections, and he can have more of a Republican country, which is really all he's ever wanted. All right, so let me just read something to you that I, I mean, something I've been thinking about a lot after reading your article last night, and that is this. So I'm going to make an analogy, and here's the analogy. Uh, you know that when a special ed kid comes into a community, the community used to get, you know, supposed to get some money from the federal government, supposed to get some money from the state, but normally the community suddenly has to spend a lot more money to educate that kid because instead of it costing ten or twelve thousand dollars, it may cost thirty or forty thousand dollars. So in my community, when a new family moved into town, it wasn't how are you, who are you, how many children. The first question that was asked is any special ed kids, and that's because of the cost factor. So here's what I'm frightened about by asking the citizenship question. Follow my my logic here is that by not including and having this dramatic undercount, you're not only losing representation, you are also losing billions and billions of dollars. So you are adding one more arrow in your pouch to hate undocumented immigrants because now they are there. They are now actually straining your system where the federal government used to reflect the fact that they live there or they were they were part of the infrastructure there or they were the part of the educational system there and there would be so at least requisite funds to recognize the number of people in your state instead by only recognizing the number of citizens in your state, then the undocumented immigrant becomes even more hated because they are draining vital resources out because there is no reflection of that in the census. In a lot of ways, what Justice Roberts will be embracing, he may be embracing Republicans, he will be embracing even greater instability. Yeah, I mean, I I certainly agree with all of that. And I think that the problem is People aren't looking beyond the immediate benefit to them in this case. The, the Republicans are saying, we'll get more seats. They aren't thinking about all the funding that their states as a whole could lose. Texas, for instance, Texas is going to be quite screwed by this. Yes, I mean, exactly. it will help state legislative Republicans because 
Uh, a lot of Democratic areas may lose seats in the state legislature, but Texas could also lose seats in the House of Representatives, and the state as a whole could lose billions in federal funding because it has a lot of immigrants. So this is, in some sense, kind of cutting off your nose to spite your face if you are a Republican. The short-term gains may not be outweighed by the long-term uh, problems of this strategy. Well, I, I, we were talking about the fact that the ACA was something that everybody kind of understood. Is there any way, shape or form, Mark Joseph Stern, that you could imagine that this question on the census could be a hot topic at bars and at Dunkin' Donuts? I mean, I, I, mean, I, I know it sounds crazy, but we're beginning to understand process. This is the first time I feel after the 2018 election, people are beginning to understand big money and politics. People are beginning to understand the term gerrymandering. For the first time ever, I think people are understanding that what are the underpinnings of democracy isn't just only about the franchise, but there are so many other inputs here that this is an opportunity with 2020 candidates running for office that they could use this and they could really whack them on this. So this is what I will say. Uh, I think that if you are concerned about this issue and the, the court rules the wrong way, which I fear it will, get out there and tell your friends and family to respond to the census no matter what. Right. Tell them to tell their friends and family. Volunteer with the Census Bureau, which, by the way, has not been corrupted. The Department of Commerce is corrupted, but the Census Bureau within it is still a very noble agency. They are going to try very hard to canvas every community to get everyone to respond, immigrant and citizen alike. Get out there and help them do that and spread the word that people have nothing to fear from the census. Encourage people to respond to this document. Make them understand what's at stake. Make them understand that this isn't just about, uh, you know, how many people happen to live on this block. This is about funding for your schools. This is about electoral power in Congress. This is about being counted in America. Uh, And if people are if people are too scared to do that, uh, it's going to undermine our democracy as a whole. So I think getting the conversation out there, not just as a political topic, and, and every 2020 candidate does seem to be against the citizenship question. Uh, unfortunately, they aren't president yet, so they can't do much about it. But getting this out there as a, as a sort of topic at the dinner table, at the coffee shop, at the right. school board meeting, right. getting people invested and involved, I think that's the most that most so of us can do. Do you think that's fair to the folks you're advising? Because is it really true that they're protected? Census Bureau may be very nice now, but Trump can have his ponchos go insist the, well, just the, the, the way Ross the, did. Right. The so, anonymity question. So in short, tell me how I can argue against just what Ken said. What is the guarantee that there is anonymity? There are strong legal barriers uh, that should and have thus far successfully uh, protected census responders uh, from having their information and data mined by other agencies and law enforcement uh, to try to target them. Uh, There is no evidence that the Trump administration would be capable of abolishing that longstanding practice, uh, of finding a way around these laws, uh, of essentially raiding the Census Bureau and breaking the law over and over again uh, to figure out who is a citizen and who isn't and to get this information. Uh, You know, I I understand the fear, and I don't mean to say it's totally irrational, because the Trump administration has been sharing various data that was normally protected with ICE and CBP, but this should be different and always has been different in the past. Uh, And I would also add that you do not have to mark down whether you're uh, an authorized or unauthorized immigrant. You don't have to say you don't have legal status. It only asks you to say whether or not you're a citizen. And there are a ton of non-citizens who are here legally. Right. So, So people who are here on visas, people who are here on green cards. So all of them fall under the same umbrella. That's right. Citizen or generic whatever, That's and that right. is the whatever. So, so it sounds like one of the most important things we have to do is we have to go into the Hispanic community. We have to make sure they understand every single thing you just said here, because in a lot of ways, I understand the fear, and I can't imagine it because I am not that person. But, right. to un- but to have them understand that if they don't participate, they will actually aid and abet their fear. 
that it will make it worse for them and it will not make it better. And the way to undermine Wilbur Ross is to, in fact, do this and do this in a way that maybe is even historic in participation in order to do it. But it sounds like they need to be educated to understand this is where their power is, is to stand up to this. I think so. And I would add that the 2010 census had an undercount of Hispanics as well. Right. Uh, and whites were overrepresented. There was a, probably more than a million Hispanics undercounted in 2010, not because of any malign behavior by the government, but because of these fears that were already present back then that have been exacerbated now. And frankly, people like you and me just weren't really paying attention to that right. stuff back then. If we can get people to pay attention now, if we can close that attention deficit uh, and get people uh, you know, out on the streets or on the phone helping to make sure the census is actually accurate, then theoretically we could make it even more accurate than the 2010 census. Well, you know, I'm going to say this again, but uh, so when does the sen- when do they begin to collecting the data for the census? When does it start? Uh, they'll begin this year, starting after the Supreme Court's decision in June. They'll begin yeah. printing forms and, and hitting the streets. This and summer. how long? How long does it last? About a year. About a year. So again, the, I'm going to I'm going to say this. One of the benefits of the fact that we have this conga line of candidates running for uh, for president, you know, 20 of them with every flavor known to man, is that one of their goals is to really sort of bring in uh, new people into the electoral process. And I think one of the things I would almost say if I were a candidate is if you're going to go into a community, explain the census as you ask people to make sure that they register. Make it part of the package of conversation. Make it part of the package of educating so people understand we need your vote. You need to participate in the census. The two have to be almost wedded together. And I think that that becomes really important. Mark Joseph Stern, you write the best stuff. And I just want to give people again the headlines in Slate magazine. They have to read both articles. We never even got to the LGBTQ. (laughs) We'll do that. The Supreme Court is poised to shred its credibility to let Trump rig the census. And then your prior piece, the census case is a test of whether the truth, oh my God, still matters at the Supreme Court. This breaks my heart. How but scary you are, is that question? Yeah, exactly. Oh Thank you so much for writing, Mark Joseph Stern. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much. All right. Ciao, everyone. And we end with what's our song, Monsieur? Well, I thought we were going to talk about the LGBTQ oh, cases. That's all right. We so, can do that too. Uh, it's Bob Marley singing "One Love," because well, love is the basis of. Well, we we need one love, and the Hispanic community needs. We have your back. Okay. Right. Participate in the census. That's all I have yeah, to say. Great. One love. Let's get together and feel alright. Hear the children crying. comes from you and from the River Reporter newspaper in Narrowsburg, New York, riverreporter.com. And this is WJFF Jeffersonville and W233AH Monticello, public radio for the Catskills and Northeast Pennsylvania, two minutes to eight o'clock here. 
57 degrees and fair in Jeffersonville. Partly cloudy tonight with a low of 36 overnight. Tomorrow, mostly sunny. High of 64. And then tomorrow night, slight chance of showers. And then rain very likely into the evening. Low of 46 overnight. Friday, rain all day. High of 57. And those showers likely continuing into Friday night. Low of 39 overnight that night. Stay tuned right now for me, Brad Mann, on Neonatal Pulse right here on WJFF 90.5 FM, all new music. And then at 10 o'clock will be the Big Insomniac Show, 60s, 70s, and a whole lot more. And at 11 o'clock, Return to the Source, your syndicated NPR jazz program. Wonderful Wednesday waves here in Jeffersonville. Stay tuned for all of that coming up next right here. Radio Catskill 90.5 FM. Support comes from Rafters Tavern, Calicoon, New York, an intimate gathering place for food, music, and fun. Rafters Tavern on Facebook. WJFF is currently seeking new members for its board of trustees. Perhaps you have experience in human resources, nonprofit administration, finance, marketing, or media. Or maybe you just love your community radio station and you'd like to do more to help. Contact us to see if becoming a board member is right for you. Email manager at wjffradio.org or call us at 845-482-4141. Support comes from you and from the Law Office of John Ferrara in Monticello, New York, providing legal services in the areas of matrimonial and family law and criminal defense. John.Ferrara557 at gmail.com. 